This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today's lecture is Making Citizens and Christians at Easter. I would like to make some brief preliminary remarks. Uh, Professor John Van Engen, an old friend of mine, is in a justly famous article on the future of medieval church history, raised the question of how we understand the historical reality that virtually everyone in medieval Europe, Jews and occasional Muslims accepted, was christened as an infant. Since medieval Europeans were all routinely baptized as a matter of custom and law, this practice seems normal, even to modern Catholics. Historians of medieval religion had not, at the time of Professor von Engen's article two decades ago, and still had not seriously investigated what this ceremony meant for medieval people, or the many things it might have meant. This is a question that needs to be asked because if there really was a medieval Christendom, to which uh, uh, Carlos uh, referred yesterday, and as John van Engen and others believe, it was ultimately founded on the culture's universally shared rite of initiation. Nevertheless, it is well to remember that christening meant vastly different things to those who received it at various times and places in the Middle Ages. The small family groups that assisted at baptisms of their children in late medieval England, so beautifully described by Eamon Duffy in his classic Stripping of the Altars, had a very different experience from the crowds of men, women, and children baptized en masse with their leaders under Charlemagne's subjection of the Saxons in 777. The former certainly understood the ceremony and its uh, consequences differently from the latter. The theological implications also differed. The apparently popular belief, attacked and reputed by Bishop Jonas of Orleans in the 820s, that once baptized, the believer could never go to hell, but merely face some perhaps extended period of purgatorial fire after death, can be contrasted with the common opinion of 13th century Italians, such as Dante, who famously put plenty of baptized sinners, even bishops and popes, deep in the pits of hell. For Dante, baptism did not imply salvation. And the relationship of baptism and hell was an issue that would not go away. The 14th century mystical writer we know as Julian of Norwich, who died about 1416, fretted constantly over the case of those who had received their Christendom while yet live an unchristian life and die without charity. What did it mean for bad livers that Jesus told what Jesus told Julian in one of her showings that all would be well? The solution she had received from Christ, however, was a secret that she would never reveal. We might wonder about how Bishop Jonas would have re reacted to one possible implication of this showing which is that ultimately no one goes to hell? In any case, these scattered examples demonstrate the communitarian nature of baptism, both here and hereafter. The sacrament linked people, both living and dead. The rites creation, not just of Christians, but of Christendom, therefore, deserves our attention. It is interesting that medieval theologians, such as Thomas Aquinas, pay little or no attention to the corporate context of baptism. 
For sake of brevity, I will allow the angelic doctor to stand for the other theologians of the age. In the treatise on baptism in the Tertia Pars of the Summa, Thomas analyzes the matter, the form, the minister, and the recipient of baptism. The only time he mentions baptism's effect of aggregating a believer into the congregation occurs rather in his treatment of circumcision, where he notes the parallel function of the Jewish and Christian rites. The, this individualistic focus of St. Thomas seems little different from other scholastics. Perhaps the communitarian and social effects of the sacrament were just so obvious as to need no comment. Whether or not Aquinas understood the communitarian dimension, this aspect of the sacrament, as John van Engen has suggested, is not obvious to modern historians. What I will attempt to do in this lecture is to sketch out what might be called the implicit social or corporate theology of baptism as it was expressed in, and yes, you know where I'm going, in one place, the cities of Central and North Italy, and one period of time, the, the long 13th century, 1125 to 1325, if I may quote the subtitle of my book. The people, clergy and laity of the Italian cities, created a rich network of spaces and actions by which they expressed their corporate theology of baptism. Indeed, they crafted what might be called even a political theology of baptism. Medieval Italians and medieval Christians generally were able to fuse many meanings, some to our eyes sacred and some to our eyes profane, uh, in the same rites and rituals. Most famously, perhaps, is Van Engen's example of the dubbing of a knight, surely a secular, if, pro if not profane, profession, which was accompanied by a ritual that included not only a prayer vigil in the church, but also priestly anointings and blessings, all patently sacred, of weapons. And as you know, in medieval Italy, this was done by bishops. Probably, as I have argued on other occasions, the modern categories of sacred and secular dominated in America by the political uh, rhetoric of the separation of church and state are pretty much meaningless for medieval Italy. And I would add for pre-modern society generally. I think that's become obvious from Carlos's lecture. 13th century Italian Christians were made, not born. They were made. When as infants, they were reborn if from... Uh, in the font of the baptistry of the mother church, the ecclesia matrix of their city. When the children passed through the water of the font, they, like the ancient Israelites passing through the Red Sea, became sharers in a covenant between God and their people, and I mean the people of their particular city. As one anonymous commentator of about 1200 put it, the Christians' baptismal renunciation of Satan and acceptance of the faith of the church was the Christian equivalent of the covenant between God and the Jewish people at Sinai. Italian preachers often presented sin, be it personal, such as gluttony, or public, such as vanity and dress, as a kind of perjury, a violation of the, of the civic covenant of baptism. In communal Italy, baptism was performed by immersion full immersion, the form of the sacrament that Thomas himself considered nor the normal, indeed preferred, form. As he wrote, the immersion, by immersion, the child went down into the tomb with Christ and rose again, united to the Savior's death and burial. 
That Italian commentator, Anonymous, whom I also emphasized, they became part of Christ's living body, the church, to await his return in glory. For the faithful of medieval Italy, baptism also made them members of another body, the civic body of their particular commune. In contrast to St. Thomas, Italian lay writers who mention baptism make little of the forgiveness of sin. They instead focused on the corporate aspect of the rite, its creation of a particular people. Baptism was both a familial and community event, more so than the mass, communion, or confession, since it associated the newly baptized with other Christians. In short, it populated the commune and its church. By the 13th century, immersion in the font of the city baptistry legally made the, bapt one a baptized, made the baptized a citizen of the commune. It created a bond like siblinghood among all those baptized in that place. Dante, meeting his great-grandfather Cacciaguida in heaven, heard his ancestor recall his rebirth in Florence's beloved San Giovanni, that baptismal bond that made both of them fellow citizens. To quote, To so restful and so true a life as citizens, to such beautiful citizenship, to such a faithful household, Mary, invoked with loud cries, gave me, uh, gave me, and in your ancient baptistry, at once I became both Christian and Catraguita. That is, both Catholic and a Florentine. Lawyers such as Bartolus in the 14th century recognized the primacy of baptism as the way to citizenship. He wrote, does baptism in a place make one a citizen of that city? So it seems, for through baptism one is freed from sin and the slavery in which one is held by Satan and the angels. Therefore, like manumission of a slave, it seems as a consequence one acquires citizenship through baptism. There were other ways to become a citizen. At Volterra, one could receive the protection afforded citizens after 10 years residence, and the juridical status of citizen after that, if one petitioned the city rector of the potesta. Liberal Siena required but three years residence before the citizenship petition, while Padua more stringently required 40 years. But such citizens remained in the end naturalized, adopted members of the community. The natural born Sienese, Volterran, or Paduan was the one reborn in the city baptistry. The rites of baptism created and ordered the community, and by participating in them, the entire society expressed rebirth and renewal. The baptisms of Easter on the afternoon of Holy Saturday were the great civic religious event of the year for the communes. During the 11th century, the bishops of Italian cities had fought a successful campaign to restrict the rite of baptism in the city and its surrounding district to the cathedral alone, the Duomo, the house of the city. With rare exceptions, get this, the only baptismal font of the city was that of the Duomo, and the ordinary minister, at least for the first baptisms done at Easter, was the bishop. In 1187, when Don Lanfranco Mazzocchi, canon of the Cathedral of, Vicenza, uh, of San Vicenzo, 
at Bergamo was asked about the relation of his church to the baptismal church of Santa Maria, he explained that the two were a single entity. And since the baptisms for the city were performed in one, both together formed the Ecclesia Matrix, the mother church. Baptism, above all else, identified the first church of the city as a matrix, that is, mother. As the Italian cities shook off control by the German emperors, Easter baptisms became ever more pronounced as, the civic, as a civic as well as ecclesiastical ceremony. Providing water for the great immersion pool of the baptistry became the city government's responsibility. At Verona, the communal official responsible for water on entering office took an oath that he would, as his primary responsibility, provide a good supply of fresh water to the cathedral for baptisms and for making holy water. Ma Modena pledged that the city would provide the water needed for Holy Saturday at baptisms. Mass Easter baptisms are a distinctive characteristic of communal Italy, symbolic of that epoch's particular union of the church and the city. St. Thomas himself acknowledges the importance of the Easter baptismal rites, stating that the baptisms of Easter and Pentecost are the only solemn baptisms. These feasts were for him the privileged times for the rite. The other, more private celebrations of baptism during the year, he would justify only for those in danger of death. There's a good Italian. Thomas here, if only by implication, shows himself a member of the communes, emphasizing the times and rites on which Italian civic religious year pivoted. As far as I can tell, the solemn mass baptisms of Easter are a uniquely North and Central Italian phenomenon. Let that sink in. They're found, as far as I can tell, nowhere else in Europe. For 13th century Italians, the city's one baptismal font was the city's womb, where one was born a citizen through spiritual rebirth as a Christian. The religious heart of the commune was not the cathedral, but the baptistry. These structures give us a theology in stone. When Dante Alighieri met his ancestor Cacciaguida in the already mentioned passage of the Paradiso, he spoke to him of their native city, calling his fellow Florentines the flock of San Giovanni, that is, the flock of the baptistry, the offspring of the city baptistry. Quote, Tell me, my dear forebear, about your ancestors, and what were the years like that are accounted to your youth? Tell me about the flock of San Giovanni, how large it was then, and who were those in it worthy of the highest rank? Attachment to the baptistry was almost physical, certainly experiential. As a young boy, the Franciscan Salambene of Parma heard from his father, Guido da Adam, how, when construction of the new Parma baptistry began in 1196, he and the other men of the city put stones into the foundations with the names of their families. The construction project was a long one. The Parma baptistry opened 20 years later for Easter baptisms of 1216. Gorgeous building. Wait till you see the inside. Those who visit it today will agree it was worth the wait. Fra Salambeni's house was right next door. In his chronicle, the friar proudly recorded his own baptism there at Easter in 1221. 
Civic attachment to the baptistry survived to the end of the Middle Ages. In 1472, for example, the citizens of Perugia argued for restoration and repairs to their cathedral complex principally because of their shared baptism there. The mother church's monopoly on baptisms in Italy perdured into the modern period. Bologna, for example, did not have other baptismal churches in its sub even in the suburbs until the late 1600s. And until the mid-20th century, all Florentines received baptism in Dante's own baptistry of San Giovanni. All of them. Baptism attached one to a place. The site of baptism determined size of tithing and tax responsibilities. The baptistry was not merely the site of baptisms. Other ceremonies, public and private, occurred there. Eventually, it became the place to keep the city's battle wagon, the carroccio, and the city's military banners, including those captured from enemies in battle. Uh, I'll mention that the proudest possession was the disas in Parma in the baptistry was the disassembled carroccio of Cremona, captured from the evil Cremonese during a great battle. The baptistry became the shrine of the Republic. In 1262, after Vicenza had thrown off the yoke of the tyrant Enzolino da Romano, the first act of celebration by the restored Republican government was to commission the construction of a new baptistry. The old one had been destroyed by the Enzolino tyrant. They placed in it in the main piazza between the Cathedral of St. Mary and the Episcopal Palace. The space around the baptistry was sacred. No executions could be performed there. Frescues on the outside of the baptistry, as at Verona, commemorated important, sometimes frightful military events in city history. Private citizens decorated the interior walls with ex-voto paintings acknowledging prayers fulfilled. That's just part of the inside of the wonderful Parma baptistry. Such ex-votos can be seen today in the baptistry at Parma. The Medici Tyrants of so-called Renaissance, Florence, recognized that San Giovanni was a Republican shrine. On seizing power, the first thing they did was to purge the baptistry of its communal Republican paraphernalia. Removing and destroying the votive images, banners, and candle offerings dating to the Republican regime. Such artifacts were cose publiche, symbols of the ancient of ancient victories and the city's expansion and defense of the contado. Many loyal Florentines angrily protested the sacrilege. Citizens of the communes, like Hugh of St. Victor a century earlier, seem to have viewed blessed baptismal water as a kind of permanent sacrament, a locus of sacred power. This was an idea explicitly rejected, I'm sad to say, by St. Thomas. But Italians continued to swear their most sacred oaths over the waters of the city font and to renew them in times of invasion when the commune was threatened. The chronicler Dino Compagni addressed his fellow Florentines assembled before their font in their baptistry in 1301. And now I quote, Dear and capable citizens who have each of you taken holy baptism from this font, reason forces and constrains you to love each other like brothers. Also, you possess the most noble city in the world. Well, as a Sienese fan, I'll dispute that. Over this sacred font from whence you received holy baptism, swear to a good and perfect peace among yourselves, so that the enemy Lord who is coming to attack us will find all our citizens 
united. At Parma, when Barardo Oliverio da Adam died in the Battle of San Cesario in 1229, fighting against the hated Bolognese, the commune could think of no greater honor than to place his body in state before the font in the baptistry. When the exiled Dante imagined a return in triumph to Florence and a claim as loyal citizen and honored poet, he envisioned the reception would take place in his beloved San Giovanni. The lasting Italian identification of the baptistry with the city saved many of these massive freestanding communal structures from being pulled down after the Council of Trent when baptismal churches proliferated and quiet private baptism became the Catholic norm. Sorry, Carlos. The favorite site for baptistries was directly before the west facade of the Duomo. This is the arrangement at Volterra's lovely little baptistry. Its most famous example is Florence's San Giovanni. Lost communal baptistries were positioned before the cathedral's west portal at Siena, Bologna, and Reggio. We see the same position at Piacenza, where today a column topped by a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary stands in an eight-sided flower bed before the facade of the Duomo, marking out the site of the medieval baptistry, destroyed by tyrants in 1544. In the Duomo of Modena, Carvings over the doors on the inside of the west front show that they too open towards the baptistry before the facade. Dante's baptistry of San Giovanni seems small today compared to the late medieval Duomo, Santa Maria del Fiore. But in the 1200s, the old cathedral of Santa Raparata was a much more humble structure, less than half the size of the current cathedral. In those days of the commune, the Florentine baptistry was by far the more impressive building evidence of the structure's civic importance. Desire to highlight newly uh, instituted baptismal rituals at Easter uh, Saturday probably urged this positioning of the baptistry. By placing the new structures directly in front of the cathedral in a large open space, Easter processions from the cathedral perambulating the baptistry, counterclockwise like the heavens, uh, became public spectacles. The carrying of the newly baptized infants through the great west portals of the cathedral for the Easter Vigil Mass made their incorporation into the worshiping community far more impressive than the old patristic practice which slipped the neophytes in through the sacristy or the north transept. But this new location uh, did obscure the Duomo's facade. Not surprisingly, a number of cities positioned their baptistry to the side of the piazza fronting the Duomo. This kept ritual benefits of the westward location and even improved on The south side was preferred. Parra, Padua, and Parma exemplify this arrangement, although Padua's structure is square and attached to the corner of the Duomo. The location showcases the Easter rites and procession while preserving an unobstructed view of the Mother Church herself. The communes inhabited from antiquity the traditional form of a baptistry an eight-sided building covered by a dome. The octagon aligned with the points of the compass, the dome brought the vault of heaven down to earth. Symbolically, the building stood at the center of terrestrial and celestial space. Very commonly, as at San Giovanni in Florence, there were three doors, facing east, north, and south. The west wall, the direction of darkness and the setting sun, was left blind. That bay formed a niche for the baptistry altar. In Florence, the dome mosaics depict biblical history from creation to the last judgment. Isn't that spectacular? 
Uh, this program placed those baptized below in the cent center of salvation history. At Padua, the men of Boy frescoes in the baptistry accomplish a similar positioning of participants in biblical time. At Pisa, the set of buildings in the cathedral complex, the Piazza dei Miracoli, position worshipers at the center of time through a different strategy. They do this by placing the baptistry, the future, the cathedral, the present, and the, and the cemetery, the, uh, the, uh, the Campo Santo, the past, in a single unit. That's the past, present, and future of the commune. The single most important element in the baptistry was and is the font. Here, by immersion, one became a Christian, baptized into Christ's death by uh, entering a watery tomb. Paleo-Christian fonts were excavated below the floor of the baptistry, creating a kind of wading pool. The minister and those baptized entered the water down a series of steps. Such an ancient font, or at least its vestiges, can be seen in recent excavations near the Cathedral of Milan. The original fonts at Ravenna undoubtedly had this shape. No example of a wading pool font exists from communal Italy. It would have been very awkward for the baptism of infants. In late antiquity, when adult baptisms became rare and eventually ceased, the old form of font disappeared. The ancient baptistries were then converted into churches. Something far less monumental replaced the great wading pool fonts. The early 11th century font at Ferrara shows the new style. Made of a monoblock of Byzantine column, it is not much bigger than the modern font. At Modena, the early 11th century font is preserved in the Museo Civico, now transformed into a well, perhaps probably for use in a garden. This font resided uh, until about 1400 in a small chapel inside the west doors of the Duomo on the north side. Vicenza had a Longobard font similar in size to that of Ferrara. It was kept in a small baptismal chapel on the right as one entered the cathedral, and it continued to use there until the Napoleonic period. None of these fonts was at all monumental. They were placed in small cramped chapels. They are not large enough to they are just large enough to baptize a single infant in the presence of the godparents and perhaps the parents. During the communal baptistry building boom of the later 12th and early 13th centuries, uh, I might make a mention here if you read guidebooks about these communal baptistries, they'll always say, oh, this goes back to antiquity. No, they're all constructions of the late 11 and early 1200s. The font style it's also underwent a radical change, and what appeared bespoke a new corporate public theology of baptism. The best-known example of the new style is that preserved in the baptistry of Pisa, which you can see today. Here's a view from the galleries. That font is much larger than even ancient baptismal pools, is raised above the ground two steps above the floor. The eight-sided vasca, like the base of the building, orients to the compass. At alternate angles of the octagon, four cylindrical sole stalls are attached to the inside of the font. These provided dry wells within but separated from the water-felt central vessel. There the priest could stand while baptizing and stay dry. The upper gallery of the Pisa Baptistry afforded the citizens a fine view of the font and the actions in or around it. The large baptistry and its vessel served not for private individual baptisms, but for the multiple mass assembly line baptisms of the solemn Easter rites. 
About 1140, the canonist Gratian, in case 30 of the Decretum, envisioned a solemn baptism in a communal font. Gratian's hypothetical case envisions great crowds lined up before a font. The priest uh, hands the newly baptized baby to his own father after having dunked it, thereby making the man's son, making his him his son's own godparent. One became a godparent, not by signing papers, but by physically lifting or receiving the child from the font. As this mistake gave the man spiritual affinity as a godparent with his wife, they had become what are called co-parents. The event raised the question of whether it would be spiritual incest and therefore forbidden for the father to cohabitate with his wife. Gratian, you will be relieved to know, concluded it did not. To moderns, the accident and the legal issues it raised seem far-fetched, but both are perfectly at home in the communal Italy where mass baptisms and crowds were normal. Gratian's confused priest was probably baptizing in a font like that at Pisa, where the priest had to take the child from the parents, turn around, dunk it three times, continue turning around and hand it to the godparents. Uh, notice the confusion that will happen in the pivot. Who, you, who do I hand off to? It is a mistake that gave the man. Uh, this is a uh, this is a mistake that probably happened many times, and Gratian's priest was not the only one who got confused. The baptism was a spiritual glue that held the community together. It bound people by a relation stronger than that of marriage. The ties to in-laws ceased when a spouse died. Godparentage was permanent. The Godfather. Even St. Thomas recognized that in his day, godparentage was not about religious education. The Christian community was enough to provide for that, he remarked. Co-parentage for Italians was about social connections, not the catechism. Back to the actual rite itself. Baptismal logistics were more elegant further north. There are two lovely communal period fonts that survive, both of civil reform. In the nave of the baptismal church at Verona is a large eight-sided vasca carved from a single block. Instead of four individual stalls for the ministers, as in Tuscany, there is in the center of the pool a single quatrefoil well. Four priests could stand in it with their backs to the center, facing outward over the water-filled vessel. This avoided the awkward turning. The side panels carried bas-reliefs depicting the life of Christ up to his baptism by John in the Jordan. This particular panel greets us as we enter through the baptistry's ceremonial door. The image identifies those reborn in the font with Christ himself. The font is a mystical river Jordan. The second example of a northern font is at Salem Bene's baptistry in Parma, where it is part of the structure's intact medieval decorations. The font's imposing size is magnified by raising it three steps above the floor. Its pink Veronese marble becomes a vibrant red when wet. Uh, I know that that happens because the first time I entered this baptistry, the baptismal font was filled with water. And I asked the docent, why is there water in the font? That Actually, it spilled over and made the thing glow blood red. And he said, uh, because the bishop is coming today to baptize some babies in the font. I really was, wanted to stay around, but my train was leading. I wanted to see how he climbed into the, the dry well. <laughs> the Parma Baptistry also contains a second uh, 13th century font of smaller size intended for emergency individual private baptisms of children in danger of death. 
On the wall above the smaller font, there is a fresco that twice depicts the small font in use. In one image, a deacon, contrary to Thomas's view on the ordinary minister of the rite, baptizes a child by immersion, while the godparents look on. In the other, a bishop baptizes again by immersion, a king, perhaps Constantine. The point is clear. The baby citizen is sacramentally equal to any king or emperor because they're born of the same water, and therefore the same mother. Indeed, he is better off than the king since his baptism makes him part of the body of the republic. This small font was used for children whose health counseled against waiting until the mass baptisms of Easter and Pentecost. Such a motive also explains the preservation of small, older fonts in cities that boasted monumental communal baptistries with their large, impressive fonts. I will not uh, uh, focus on the preparatory rites leading up to the Easter baptisms, the 40-day Lenten period of the exorcisms, the scrutinies, the ritual giving of the pater and the credo, but on the ceremonies of the Easter vigil itself because they more clearly reveal to us the corporate theology of baptism. Like St. Thomas, 13th century Italians considered these preparatory rites much secondary to the solemn baptism itself. Other than the families involved, few attended those rites during Lent. The big crowds turned out for the birthing of new citizen Christians that took place on Saturday afternoon, the time of the vigil since the 10th century. After the readings, chants, and prayers of the vigil service proper, the congregation and the clergy left the cathedral in procession by the west doors and went to the baptistry. The, ba the procession perambulated the baptistry, singing the litany of the saints, which always included local saints, such as Homo Bono at Cremona or Ramundo Paul at Mario at Piacenza, and they, they had gone ahead to claim the city's place in heaven. The procession entered the baptistry and fittingly stopped the litany at the invocation, John the Baptist, pray for us. To the allegorists, the invoking of the saints during the procession around the baptistry evoked both the image of the rainbow as a glory circling the throne of God in Revelation 4 and as a sign of God's mercy after Noah's flood, or water. It also associated the community of the saints in heaven with the civic community assembled on earth. When the crowds had finally all entered the baptistry, the cantors resumed the litany and continued up to the invocation, all saints of God, pray for us. The bishop then, baptized the, then blessed the water of the font. Into it he plunged a small lighted candle, symbolizing the pillar of fire in the desert of Exodus, or two candles representing the burning love of God and neighbor. The water was now fertile. Using the lighted wick, a cleric lighted the catechumen's candles held by the godparents. The womb of the church was now ready for its fruitful work. Contemporary theologians, including St. Thomas, saw a priest, not the bishop, as the ordinary minister of baptism. But the communal practice was for the bishop, the pastor of the city, to perform at least the first couple of baptisms. This made perfect sense since Unlike the priest, the bishop himself was the father of the city, so he rightly performed the birthing of at least a couple new citizens. Sometimes he did the first three, in most places, however, only the first two. At Siena, for example, having removed his fine vestments, the bishops put on a cheaper set, Villiora Paramenda, for the messy work. I could tell you some stories about baby males peeing on the priest in Byzantine ceremonies. Uh, he received a boy from his parents and baptized him with the name of Giovanni, then a girl from her parents whom he baptized with the name of Maria. 
last he baptized a boy with the name Pietro. Elsewhere, the first two children were also baptized Giovanni and Maria, the names of John the Baptist and the Virgin. The baptism was done by a triple immersion, invoking the persons of the Blessed Trinity and recalling, as Thomas mentions, Christ three days in the tomb. The bishop held the infant facing away from him, cleaner that way for boys, uh, and first immersed the child facing east, then facing towards the north, and finally towards the south. Notice I made a sign of the cross, thus forming a cross by the three motions. At least for the final dunking, the child's head was to go under the water, as Thomas himself quotes John Chrysostom with approval, quote, when we dip the heads under the water as at a kind of tomb, our old man is buried and being submerged, is hidden below, and hence rises again renewed. Before passing the child to the godparents, the baptizer would then repeat the baptismal vows in the child's name. After the bishop finished his couple of baptisms, four delegated priests baptized assembly line fashion the remaining children. My estimates in a city like Florence, perhaps 300. In a smaller city like Bologna, maybe only 200. The four priests also anointed the crown of the child's head as a pledge of the confirmation soon to be received. In contrast to the practice in the huge dioceses of Northern Europe, newly baptized Italians immediately received confirmation as had been the ancient practice and still is the practice in the Eastern churches today. St. Thomas, here a good Italian, quotes with approval the words of Pope Melchides there are two sacraments, baptism and confirmation, and they are so closely connected that they can be in no way separated, save by death intervening, but can be, uh, nor can one be duly celebrated without the other. For the angelic doctor, the separation of the sacrament typical in Northern Europe made true solemn baptism impossible. Such a deformed ceremony would be justified only by necessity. Thomas, like other scholastics, of course, I have no idea of the modern conceit that makes confirmation a rite of Christian adulthood, a kind of Catholic bar mitzvah. The godparents, who also acted as confirmation sponsors, were responsible for taking the newly baptized to the bishop, who, after administering confirmation, gave each child the kiss of peace, or two or three hundred of them, one by one. It was both the peace of God and the peace of the commune. The holy anointing of confirmation was protected by a band, commonly known as the crown or corona, placed around the child's head. It symbolized that the child was now fit to be crowned with the saints, like the local worthies Raimundo or Homo Buono in heaven. Parents were not to wash the child's head for the following <coughs> days, lest the chrism be profaned. When the week was over, a priest washed the child's head and gave the bands after washing them to the parents. The pious kept their bands as a sacred relic, just as new priests kept the cloth used to wipe the oil of ordination from their hands to give it to their fathers. At least that was the custom when I was ordained. After the confirmation, one godparent held the child's lighted candle, and the other brought the white garment to a priest to be blessed. The bishop, of course, would be busy with the next confirmation. The family then clothed the child. The white baptismal robe symbolized the good works that were the true garment of every Christian. At Milan, the Ambrosian Rite added a final gesture to the ceremony. Before the procession of the newly baptized left the baptistry for the cathedral, the bishop washed the feet of each child, so they would have all had to wait until that ceremony could be done. 
When baptisms and confirmations were completed, cantors again intoned the litany, and the citizens, old and new, perambulated the baptistry three times, and the bells of the city churches pealed for the first time since Holy Thursday. The procession then to the pealing of church bells entered the cathedral by the great western doors. After the clergy had lit all the candles and lamps, Easter Mass began with the singing of the Gloria. The cathedral bells continued pealing throughout the hymn, and at Pisa, this gave the signal to the custodians of all the city churches to start ringing their own church bells. So the whole city is filled with bell ringing. All the parishes of the city were welcoming their new members. In most cities, the newly baptized received communion at this Saturday Mass, thus completing the children's incorporation into the church in the city. This was the one day of the year on which all citizens, including the newly reconciled public penitents, all received their rights together as a group, a living act of shared communion. Bishop Sicardo at Cremona, however, did not approve this time for general communion. It could wait till Easter Day. In his opinion, the shortness of the vigil mass with its extendedly brief Vesper service was itself a concession to the fussy little neophytes, by now all wailing and crying, wet and hungry. They were ready to go home for the evening feeding. It would not do to delay this by a long general communion. And, Sicardo remarked in passing, it would prove difficult to convince gentle mothers not to breastfeed their cranky infants and so break the children's Eucharistic fast. So, at Cremona, at least, the newly baptized received their first communion, their rites, during, uh, along with all the other citizens of the Easter Sunday Mass in the morning. The practice of instant infant communion seems to have continued well past the middle of the 13th century in Italy and later in other places. Oddly, Thomas seems not to know of it. I think he's showing his origins as a South Italian, where there are no communes. And perhaps uh, and he unequivocally su supports what would become the future restriction of communion to those above the age of reason seven years. This change, the loss of the solemn communion of the entire city at Easter, would mark the beginning of the breakdown of civic corporate theology of baptism we've been examining. What have we learned about the corporate theology of baptism implicit in the buildings and rites so dear to it medieval communal Italians? First, I think that Professor von Engen's challenge deserves to be taken up by both historians and theologians. Do you hear that? I hear doctoral dissertations. 13th century Italy has shown us that evidence for the ways in which medieval men and women thought about their christening is rich and ready to hand. I am sure that in this, Italy is not unique. In addition, Professor von Engen is, was certainly right to emphasize the great variety in which medieval people thought about baptism. The Italian paradigm is very much centered on the republican polity of the cities as expressed in their monumental city baptistries, which are, as far as I know, unique to that region. Study of other areas and periods will surely reveal a considerable pluriformity of baptismal theologies. Another conclusion that strikes me as important is that theologians like St. Thomas approached the sacrament and thought about it in ways very different from the lay people and clerics who created what I will call the baptismal culture of the communes. Thomas focused very much on the individuals involved in the rite and the essence of the action, not the communal and civic dimensions. In the Italian cities, baptism was above all 
for those who participated in it, a public and corporate event. It incorporated those receiving into a particular people, at once sacred and secular, the church and the city, making the distinction nearly meaningless. When we look at monuments like the Piazza dei Miracoli and the great ceiling mosaics in the Florence Baptistry, we see expressed in the material culture a positioning of the sacrament in sacred time and space. At Florence, the mosaics tell us that the ritual was positioned at the center of a narrative of salvation history that began with creation and will end only at the last judgment. At Pisa, the past of the Campo Santo and the present of the Duomo are complete only when open to the future by the presence of the baptistry. We could go on, I think, and identify other ways in which the communes can help us think about the sacrament today in new and exciting ways. Above all, they challenge us to deepen the understanding of the church as the people of God, so important to the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and they do so while holding the notion together with Christ, the church as Christ's body, into whose death we are all baptized. And on that spiritual note, I think we have some time for questions. I was wondering, maybe it was different in Northern Italy, but my understanding of medieval early modern Europe was infant mortality was pretty high, so that oftentimes you wouldn't have the luxury to be able to wait until Easter. Was that not the case? Uh, I think that, uh, yes, infant mortality was high. Uh, however, remember when we're talking about infant mortality, we're talking up to the age of five or six or even seven. Uh, you're an infant till you're seven. Uh, so how many are going to die in the couple months before the Easter Vigil? Uh, or even more months because you start saving up babies at Pentecost. That's why they're the small fonts. Uh, of course, if you're an Italian member of the communes, uh, you know, it, it would be bad if the baby died without baptism. But the big thing is you want that baby to be part of the civic ritual. This was the 4th of July. Uh, Memorial Day, all bound together, connected with Easter. And, and so uh, uh, I, when I was making my estimates about the numbers of baptisms, I was, I was being generous and guessing maybe, at least for Easter, maybe a third would have been privately baptized earlier. Perhaps half, but that still could leave in a place like Florence, 300. Yes? Did, did baptisms in the earlier church use larger fonts or smaller fonts? Uh, I think I explained that. In antiquity, when mo many baptisms, if not most of them, were of adults, they used the wading pool thing where you went down several steps into the water and got dunked, sort of the way in which some Baptists do it today. Uh, when uh, baptisms are only babies, then they go to the little fonts. These fonts I'm describing were invented and created along with their buildings by the commons. And I think I, I've never seen anything like it anywhere else, even in South Italy. The only one that exists from antiquity is the one in Ravenna, where there's a fake medieval font in it. Uh, during the Middle Ages, the baptismal font, uh, the, the baptistry in Ravenna is gone now. It was in front of the cathedral. And what's there is the Paleo-Christian baptistry with a fake font in it to make it look communal. But in fact, it had been turned into a chapel of the Blessed Virgin uh, in the early medieval period. Yes. Uh, would there <clears throat> any analogous religious ceremonies that would occur for naturalization? Uh, of, of uh, none that I know of. Uh, that required a notarial instrument. Okay. And were is there much any records of uh, conversions of uh, 
Jews or Muslims in, in this period? Uh, there, are, there are indications that they occasionally happen. And of course, with these big fonts, it's easy to dunk them. However, the numbers we're talking about are small. Uh, Muslims, there just aren't very many. Uh, they'd be in southern Italy and Sicily mostly, or in Iberia, where this doesn't practice doesn't exist. Uh, interestingly enough, the North Italian communes did not have a large Jewish population until the late Middle Ages. The ghettos, for example, in Florence, the Jewish quadrant in, in Bologna, uh, although there were some Jews after 1215 when this sort of segregation started, the real large populations, I've been talking about this with a professor who works on history of anti Semitism at Stanford, uh, and he read that. I'm not finding much about Jews in North Italy because the population movement there came later. Yes. Yeah. He's already yeah, sure. So I've I've got two questions, um, both related to Florence. So I'm curious about your use of Dante and, and his discussion of the baptistry because, um, I mean, he's he's emphasizing it both because the baptistry is sort of civically important, but also because he was born in the neighborhood of the baptistry, right? The baptistry yeah, is- Yeah, like Solomon Bannet, he's really proud of that. Right, but so the baptistry is also his local parish. So yes. to what extent is sort of, um, like how are we negotiating? How, how do you see him negotiating between- Any number of other communal Italians and Florentines have the same kind of fixation on the baptistry. He may have added reasons to like it, but, but, but as he said, it's, it's, the, it's the flock of San Giovanni. Which remember means everybody. There's no other Baptist. There's no other baptismal font in the entire Campagna. And then the second question is: So when when the Medici, uh, as you say, purge purge the baptistry, right? Why, if if it is this Republican symbol, why not just sort of destroy the baptistry and make a new uh, one? I think the protests would have just been too great. Uh, in fact, in a number of cities, they're gone because the tyrants pull them down. The thing is, it's a pretty nifty building. Oh, by the way, this is San Gimignano. When I commented about uh, Italian cities uh, with the towers of the nobility, this is the one place where the towers are still intact. Uh, but sorry, I was looking to see if it was a picture of the roof. I mean, look at that dome and all that. If you really want to tear that down, let's just turn it into a church. And let's start, which they did, the replacement for Easter baptisms under the tyrants was Corpus Christi. So you have this big procession starting at the Corpus Christi Church, which is the former baptistry, who got around the city, and of course the host comes along in the monstrance with the incense, and right behind it to be worshipped along with Christ is the tyrant on his horse. That's the, that's the big civic ceremony in the, in the despotisms of the Renaissance, is worshipping the prince and the sacrament. Yes. Um, talked about discrepancy in, in age of receiving communion and in the combining of sacraments into it. So, was there nothing in the in any medieval collections of canon law discussing a, an age of an age of um, communion? Uh, remarkably, no. That legis legislation on the age of baptism, uh, the age of the age of first communion, doesn't happen until the Council of Rome. There's a whole bunch of things that we think of as Catholic that are really tributary as I think my friend Carlos explained. Yes? Are there any theological disputes traceable to the difference in custom between communal Italy and theologians coming from England or? Uh, I know of none. Okay. Uh, there might be, uh, I'm inclined to think, uh, medieval Catholicism is very local. Uh -huh. 
uh, to quote a famous American politician, well, to paraphrase him, all religion is local. And so the tendency is, oh, they do it different here. Isn't that interesting? Uh, at least for lay people. Remember, lay people uh, are not driven by theory the way clerics are. They're, they're, they're driven by reality, uh, which is always concrete. Yes. Yeah, in so much of my liturgical studies, uh, especially looking back at uh, the baptismal traditions of Rome, like it, baptism is so much more emphasized than it is today. And it seems like there's so much beauty that we had in these baptistries and um, this real big emphasis on all of the liturgical aspects of baptism at uh, Holy Saturday. Um, and is it just more of a cultural shift that's kind of gotten us away from this ornate well, uh, remember that what I'm describing is central and north of the Italian republics. Uh, I don't think it's a cultural shift. I think it was stamped out by the Renaissance times. It was too republican, too communal. The prince doesn't have any special role in it. What other kind of, were there other civic functions that took place in the baptistry? Oh, sure. Marshalling of troops, fitting out of the corruption. Uh, dedication of things won in battle, like the banners of, and cultural other cities, uh, signing of documents. City councils often met in the baptistry. Oh, yeah. Believe me, they were busy place. Yes? Um, this is not an academic, very speculative question. How did the priests and the bishops get into the wells? I love, I uh, remember all Baptists and all fonts had a cover. And we know that, and Dante, of course, famously had to break the cover to save the kid who'd fallen in, and he defends himself against it. Uh, I suspect that they walked across the wooden covers, got in the well, and then the wooden covers were taken off. Uh, I'd like to know how the bishop then got back out. Uh, maybe they had a little sort of sort of causeway thing they put in, and was there a ladder he then climbed up? Uh, since the use of these things fell out of they fell out of use in the 14th century, and no one bothered to say this. I've never found a document that explains how it happened. I, I'm very curious to. It was easier on a place like Pisa. You know, just a little, put a little ladder there to get in, in your own. You don't have to get across the water. On the other hand, it's so much easier to not have to do the gyration. Yes? Uh, when did baptism transform from a public event to a more um, Private. Yeah, uh, uh, it probably always was in the north to some extent because the diocese are so enormous. And therefore, you couldn't do solemn baptisms. The bishop is far away in York. I mean, the diocese of York is huge. Uh, and in those places, bishops rode around baptizing babies off their horse. I, I'm not I even mean, confirming babies off their horse. Uh, famously, he would wink and got off his horse to confirm. Uh, he found that sometimes the babies got stepped on. Oh. So that, this is one of the signs he was a saint. Uh, so is it more? Uh, uh, so the solemn ceremonies disappear with the baptism, when the baptism of adults disappears. It's, however, resurrected in Italy, specifically in this time and place, for the reasons I would argue that it's, it's it is the creation of a theology of the city that is simultaneously a theology of being Christian. And then the princes come and destroy it. Another reason why I like this period. 
and I don't want the times. Am I going to follow? Uh, yes, if you're going to. So since no one's got their hand up. So, so we got four minutes. You thought your baby was in danger of dying, so you had to leave that place. But no. if, if you survived along to Easter, would you be baptizing to no. be part of the sea? Uh, no, although today you would probably go off to the Easter ritual confirmed in your first communion if you're in Italian. In the comments. Yes. This is also sort of a speculative question, um, maybe a little less fun than your question. But as you mentioned, the documents of Vatican II do highlight, yeah, sort of the corporate membership that back into which Vatican introduces us. And I'm interested in your thoughts as to um, how that can be foregrounded for sort of lay people on the ground. Like, what what can be done to um, help transform our understanding from this very individualistic understanding of the sacrament to a more corporate one. Probably we're not going to take on um, the civic understanding that we see in middle uh, Italy. No, that's impossible. That's the 18th century really not Yeah, so, so I guess, what are your thoughts on what that might look for, both like theologically, what might that look for, like for us today, and then pastorally? Um, yeah, how might that understanding? Uh, I'm a historian in 13th century Italy, not a theologian. I think that's an excellent question to ask other people here who are actually working in sacramental theology. And I think what they had to say would be far more useful to you than something I made up on the story. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say is I think that uh, baptizing babies at Easter would be a one step. I mean, right now it's only adults and children. Unless it's the child of an adult getting baptized, hey, why not do, the, do a lot of babies? Especially if you've got no adults to do. And those want to be spots. So you had mentioned that uh, uh, at least in one of the cases it took quite a long time for the for the uh, baptistries to be built. So um, uh, I guess the first time that they were used for a baptism, was there a big celebration or uh, it would be uh, the Easter ceremonies now being done the way we like it. Uh, before that we had to do a jury ring thing, perhaps. You know, a wooden font in some, you know, other church, or maybe in the middle of the nave, and now we can really, we can really have a good show, like fireworks on the Fourth of July. You don't need one; they're really nice. <laughs> um, Benjamin. Uh, so, a lot of what you've described has been perhaps uh, theological. Theology shaping some civic expressions. I would say it's civic expression shaping theology. Oh, so that that was more, more the question. What what are some of the ways uh, civic necessity, for better or for worse, has really transformed uh, theology in this period or, or in the cities? Uh, the ritual life of the cities, of which I've only done part. I hate to do it. I hate to auto cite, but there are about six chapters in my book that deal with the question. Just go ahead and read them. Uh, one thing I would say is tomorrow, uh, the civic identity changes the nature of sainthood. And so I'll do, a, I'll do a second installment, which is on what kind of saints do these cities produce, and they are shockingly different from even modern saints where they're trying to find people who are models of things. Uh, it's the largest collection, for example, of non-cleric, non-known saints in history since the martyrs. And I'm going to do something. 